distinctives. All right, we've been talking about Baptist distinctives, really, and, and what we're talking about is what it means to be a Baptist, right? So we've been doing our acrostic, and so the first thing is what? Emma? Biblical authority. What's the, the A, Riley? Autonomy of the local church. What is the P, Alex? Priesthood of the believer. Very good. And then, so tonight, we're going to talk about the T, which stands for two ordinances, two ordinances. And can somebody tell me what the two ordinances are? Ms. Barbara. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Did he take them off? Uh, jump the gun a little bit. No, that's fine. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are two ordinances. Now, an ordinance is something that we are commanded to do in the Bible. That's where we get the idea of an ordinance. And honestly, we find this in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, these, this is the early church. This is, this is at Pentecost. That's what happened um, in, in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter preached, and, and obviously then they're talking about speaking in tongues Peter was preaching in his language, and they understood it in their own language. That's what the speaking in tongues was. It was not gibberish that we hear a, a lot of times the speaking in tongues is. It is speaking in a different language, and, and they, they were shocked. They were amazed that, that he was speaking in his language, and all those different people from all those different places and all those different nationalities were actually understanding it in their own language. That's what the miracle was. But they got saved, and then, of course, after they got saved, we find out that they, they were baptized, they were added to the church, and then they continued steadfastly in the doctrines that they were taught. They, con they continued to fellowship. They continued in breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. Now, uh, they continued what was established by the Lord himself. Uh, Jesus conducted the first communion service, right, the Last Supper, and we're going to look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's exactly what Jesus was doing there in Matthew. He was instituting the Lord's Supper. And, of course, then Jesus was baptized by, the, by John the Baptist as well. And so the apostles' doctrine that we hear there included salvation by grace through faith, obviously, in Jesus Christ. But then baptism by immersion, as we find there in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, each local church is, is instructed in the Word of God to practice and to observe these two very important ordinances. So this is not just something that we do because, well, this is what we've always done. This is something that we're commanded to do. And so these are very symbolic. They're, very, they're purely uh, observances that are having or imparting no saving grace. Baptism does not save you. The Lord's Supper does not save you. Uh, their ordinances, their statutes to be followed. That's the, and, and, and let me just quickly kind of give you the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament. Why don't we call them sacraments? The Catholics call them sacraments, and they have seven of them. Well, an ordinance is, is a statute that's something to be followed. A sacrament is something that imparts grace. In other words, you do it in order to be able to go to heaven. You do it in order to be able to be saved. We don't call them sacraments because, number one, the Bible doesn't call them sacraments. And number two, because the Catholics do that, and in so doing, they are, they are implying that there is a, a conferring of grace by doing those sacraments. 
um, rather than just symbolizing grace that has already been conferred on us, which is exactly what the Lord's Supper is and exactly what baptism is. And we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. But the Catholic Church believe that, believes that it confers grace upon you directly. It removes sin. That's why they baptize. That's why they have all communion. That's why they do all the other seven sacraments that they do as well. But we believe it publicly represents our faith in Jesus Christ, which that faith alone is what saves us. None of those other things have anything to do with salvation. Now, baptism and the Lord's Supper have to do with our spiritual walk, and it's important that we do those things because of that, but if um, a perfect example of that is the thief on the cross that, that died next to Jesus on the day that he was crucified, right? Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That, that guy didn't have time to get down off the cross and go get baptized and go do the Lord's Supper and go do all these other things and then jump back up on the cross and die, Right? He have time to do those things. And, and I think that's, that's, that's a, a lot of the point that Jesus was making. Faith in Jesus Christ and the grace that comes from Jesus Christ as a result of that faith is all you need for salvation. But if you want to follow the Lord in believer's baptism and, and in all those other things, I, I think it's a lot like a wedding anniversary. The anniversary doesn't actually make you married. Right? It's just a, it celebrates that you were married prior to that. So we call it in the Bible, uh, what the Bible calls it is an ordinance, and that is to distinguish it from the Catholic word, which is a sacrament, and uh, and implies conferring grace. We don't believe in the fact that, that they confer grace on us. But Baptists have consistently said that baptism and the Lord's Supper are symbols and are not necessary for salvation. Not, not one time has it been written in Baptist doctrine, if you will which Baptist doctrine is just Bible doctrine. We don't have books and things that we follow as, um, as our guidelines or anything like that. We have the Word of God, and that's it. And we find that in the Bible, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're a vital part of our practice um, and our worship. So when the Word of God is proclaimed, those who respond to it by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, it gives a visible demonstration to their belief in that Word through their obedience to those two ordinances. So both of these ordinances picture what was done on the cross by Jesus Christ. That's why they're important to us. But what's been done on the cross by Jesus Christ was enough. We don't need anything else added to that. Otherwise, it's works, right? Baptism could be a work if we were depending on that to save us. The Lord's Supper would be a work if we were depending on that to save us. And the Bible says clearly in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9 that it's not of works lest any man should boast. So tonight I want to give you the fourth in the acrostic that we've been going through, B-A-P-T, two ordinances. We're going to look at those ordinances and how they'll be, uh, how they should be implemented. And then we're going to look at, we're going to look at baptism and the Lord's Supper since that's the order they should come in in a Christian's life. You can't take part in the Lord's Supper if you haven't been baptized. Uh, you can't be um, baptized unless you've been saved, and so it's saved, baptized, Lord's Supper. That's the order that it should be in. So let's talk about baptism first. Number one, then, the ordinance of baptism really enters the very fabric of who we are as Baptists. Baptism, Baptist, obviously it goes, those sound the same, and they, they are, and that's, uh, that's how we got our name. Um, it comes from the Anabaptist, which maybe that's a name that sounds familiar to you. Anabaptist literally means rebaptized. That came from their enemies. That came from those who didn't like them, and and basically said, "Oh, you just you 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 just rebaptize people." Uh, eventually, the word Anna was dropped, but a, a splinter group still uses it. There are still Anabaptists out there today. Um, but why do we rebaptize then? 
If, if baptism is necessary, then why do we rebaptize? Because we hold that only a believer's baptism by immersion is valid. So if you were baptized before you were saved, your baptism is invalid. If you were baptized in any other way by, than by immersion, your baptism is invalid. And that's why we rebaptize. And so what, what you saw happening, especially amongst the Catholic Church, um, and especially in the 16, 17, 1800s, is that you know uh, many many people were baptized as babies or baptized you know uh, into the Catholic Church and that was their salvation experience, and then they came to know the truth of the Word of God that it's not by those works it's by grace in, uh, it's by faith through the grace of Jesus Christ and that and that alone for salvation and so then they realized hey I've never been I've never been baptized after I was saved or I was baptized by being sprinkled as a baby I've never been baptized in the in the true way after salvation and so they rebaptized them in other words we don't actually believe that we baptize people again now they might have been sprinkled or they might have been baptized somewhere before we baptize once we you don't uh, you don't get baptized over and over and over and over again we believe that they weren't ever actually baptized in the first place, and so believers' baptism by immersion is the only baptism. Look through the book of Acts, study through the book of Acts, and you'll see very clearly that this ordinance was, was faithfully and consistently carried out by all of the local churches. It was administered to all those who, who believed in Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, there are at least 10 examples of, a, of, of somebody being saved, and then being baptized after that. So there are some requirements then for baptism. And the first one is that you must be a proper candidate. It's somebody that's been born again by placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone as the sacrificial lamb. Never does the Bible suggest that being born again comes when the person is baptized. It always precedes baptism. Every time we see an example of somebody getting baptized in the Bible... They were not being baptized in order to be saved. They were being baptized because they had been saved. That's the first part of the command in the Great Commission. But it's only those who exercise that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that can actually obey the Lord and follow him in baptism. So there's absolutely nothing that we see in the New Testament for sprinkling or baptizing babies who cannot possibly believe for themselves, right? No baby is baptized in the entire Bible. Not one time do we see a baby being baptized. And it makes sense if you know what, what accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior is and then being baptized after you've done that, a baby cannot possibly do that. A baby doesn't know what's going on, right? Uh, you reach the age of accountability where you understand the gospel, and for most kids, that's four, five, six, seven years old before they actually even have, an, have the ability to understand what the gospel is, right? And so if they have no idea what the gospel is, how can they be baptized after salvation when they have, any, when they have no idea what they're even doing? So you baptize a baby and, and say that that baby is saved. That baby had nothing to do with it, had no idea that it even happened other than the fact that he was told later on that it did happen. And so uh, infant baptism especially, but even, even child baptism, young child baptism, um, you know, babies are not old enough to believe for themselves. Baptism is designed to publicly profess your belief. I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now I want to be baptized to show everybody else that I've done that. That's what baptism is about. Baptism is not a sacrament. It doesn't convey any grace, and it doesn't get your original sin forgiven. So babies don't need it. Ba baby baptism is, is sprinkling. 
We baptize by immersion. So it has to be a proper candidate. Somebody who's been born again by placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. But it also has to be the proper mode of baptism. And that is by immersion. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. The Bible, which is the only source of our authority, uh, never suggests any other mode besides immersion. Any other way that baptism is actually done other than by immersion. Um, you find a lot of other uh, denominations. Um, I, I think Methodists would fit into that category. Lutherans would fit into that category where they have other books that they've written as commentaries to the Bible or as, uh, as what they would use for what dictates how they do what they do in their services. And in many of those, they say baptism can be done by sprinkling or by immersion. That's not found in the Bible. That's found in their books and all of those other things. But uh, only the total immersion of a person in water adequately symbolizes exactly what baptism is designed to symbolize, and that is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus wasn't partially buried. They didn't sprinkle dirt on him, right? Romans chapter 6 and verse number 3. Know you not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, what are those verses saying? It's saying that baptism symbolizes the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we're resurrected from that water, we should walk in newness of life, not because we just got saved by being baptized, but because we are showing everyone, hey, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and we're resurrected to walk in newness of life. There ought to be something different about us after we get saved. Now turn over to Acts chapter 8. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch uh, give us a great example of, of, of baptism and how it ought to be done. Rome, uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse number 35. Now this story is very interesting. God told Philip to go out into the desert and Philip had no idea why. Well, it turns out there's this guy riding in a chariot that was reading the book of Isaiah. Didn't have any idea what he was reading because he had nobody to explain it to him, right? And so verse 35, Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now that's so key. That actually goes back to our first point, right? The, the, uh, the proper candidate for baptism. He said, hey, there's water. Why don't, we, why don't you go baptize me? And, and Peter said, all right. I mean, uh, Philip said, I'll baptize you, but are you saved? Do you believe in, 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 with all your heart? And he says, hey, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he said, all right, then you can be baptized. Well, then, verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he sprinkled water on him. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says he baptized him. Why would, he, why would he go down into the water if he was just going to sprinkle a little bit of water on his head? He could have just grabbed a cup and dumped some on there if he was going to do it that way, right? No, they went down into the water. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. 
Well, we see very clear timing, right? It's after salvation. We see a very clear prerequisite. He had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be baptized. Baptism was uh, not for salvation. Baptism was because of salvation. And obviously, we have a very clear method here as well, which is by immersion. Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 28. You have to have the proper candidate. You have to have the proper mode of baptism. And you also have to have the proper authority for baptism. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, and these are very familiar verses to most of us. Verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you all way, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now this command was not given uh, to an individual. It was given to the New Testament church. Without the proper authority, there is no baptism. Now, several denominations baptize by immersion only. Baptists are not the only ones that do that. But we as Baptists do not accept any other baptism for the reason of the different doctrines concerning salvation, eternal security, the authority of the scriptures, and so on. Because there is no other denomination like the Baptists who believe in all of those Baptist distinctives. And so there are some who would baptize by immersion, but they don't believe in eternal security. You can lose your salvation, which again... Why, I mean, that, that, you know, there, there's a lot to the idea of eternal security, that once you're saved, you're always saved. But do you have to get baptized every single time you get re-saved? Well, I sinned yesterday, so I've got to get saved again, and now I've got to go get baptized again. And every five minutes, you're going under the water and back up, right? Uh, what's the point of being baptized if you can lose that salvation? So there's a lot of denominations who will, who will baptize by immersion only, they say they baptize only somebody that's been saved, but then they believe that you can lose your salvation, or then they believe in you know, all of these other things to keep your salvation, and so on. And so uh, we only recognize that uh, the baptism of somebody who's been baptized um, after salvation by immersion, um, and of course then under the property authority of the local New Testament church. Which brings us then to the second ordinance, and that is the Lord's Supper. And turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for this, if you will. There's three conditions to the privilege of the Lord's Supper. And, and these conditions have to be met in order for somebody to partake of the Lord's Supper. And uh, two of them we've already talked about. A third one is one that we talk about often when we have uh, the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do Sunday night. For the Sunday night service, but there are three prerequisites, three things that are requirements in order for somebody to uh, take the Lord's Supper. And of course, the first one is salvation. That you cannot be a member of a local church without being saved, uh, and you can't be a person that partakes of the Lord's Supper if you're not saved either. Second one then is baptism, and baptism precedes church membership. Okay, saved, baptized, added to the church. That's the order that we find in Acts. Right, you're saved. You're baptized, you're added to the church, and then that grants the privilege of being able to take part in the Lord's Supper. Nobody can participate without having been baptized into the membership of a local New Testament Baptist church, which then gives us the, the third uh, prerequisite, and that is godliness. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who have been saved and baptized and who are members of a church who are not living for the Lord, and uh, orderly walk godly conduct as a church member. If a person is disorderly in their Christian life, you forfeit the privilege of being able to take the Lord's Supper. Um, now, that's something that only, only you can decide. 
for the most part. Now, obviously, if you're in very open sin or something like that, it's different. Um, but only you know most of the time what's going on in your heart. Only you know what sin you have in your life. I'm not God. I can't, I, I don't know those things. Uh, that is something that only you can decide. But it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother, which you only call somebody a brother who's been saved, right? But if that man is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat. What does that mean? It doesn't mean don't go to lunch with that person and sit down and talk to him about something, right? It says don't, don't eat with them. That means don't partake of the Lord's Supper with them. And so that's, you have to be walking orderly. You have to be living godly in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because it, it has to be understood that all that the observance of the Lord's Supper is, is not an act of salvation. It's basically just a reminder of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Right? If you're saved... You have been to the cross. You have had your sins forgiven. Jesus Christ is your Savior. And if that's the case, then now you need to take part in the Lord's Supper to be reminded of just exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances, there's that word, as I delivered them to you. Now, verse number 20. He talks specifically about the Lord's Supper. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, the Lord's Supper is not designed to be a church fellowship. And that's what Paul was getting on them about in those first few verses uh, 20, 21, 22, it, it's, it's not designed to be part of a fellowship, right? You're not, you're not sitting down and eating the whole Last Supper like Jesus Christ did with his disciples, right? This is just something that you're doing to remember the death and the, and the shed blood, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, he's, and that's exactly what Paul is saying. You guys are getting together and eating the Lord's Supper and you're, you know, you're eating and drinking and you're doing all this stuff. That's not what this is. You want me to praise you for doing that? That's not what this is designed for. That's what he's saying. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going to praise you for that. You're doing it all wrong. This is designed for you to remember the broken body of Jesus Christ. He broke bread. He gave him a piece of bread and he said, remember my broken body. He gave them a, a drink and he said, drink this and remember my broken body. That's what he said and do it in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper isn't designed to be a church fellowship. It's designed to turn your mind toward Christ. It's designed to make sure you are in genuine communion with him. It's to thank him for his broken body. It's to thank him for his shed blood. It's to publicly declare your faith in his death. And it has to be done with extreme caution. Look what it says in verse number 27 there in 1 Corinthians 11. And this is why, obviously, we spend a lot of time on this um, when we uh, observe the Lord's Supper together, which, like I mentioned, we're going to do on Sunday night. 
But um, the condition of godliness we find there in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, and boy, what a serious thing it is. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's pretty strong. Somebody who takes the Lord's Supper that's not saved, somebody who takes the Lord's Supper that's not baptized, somebody who takes the Lord's Supper that's not walking with the Lord, that's what he's talking about, about eating and drinking it unworthily. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bre that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself not discerning the Lord's body. That, word, that, that phrase, not discerning the Lord's body, means you don't even care about it. It's just flippant to you. It's just, it's just whatever. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. A lot of people are, are dead because they took the Lord's Supper unworthily. That's what Paul is telling them. And I don't know how many times God kills people for taking the Lord's Supper unworthily today, but I know that it's a very, very serious thing. And yet, you have so many people that come, and, and they're not saved, and they're taking the Lord's Supper. They're not baptized. They're taking the Lord's Supper. They're not walking with the Lord, and they're taking the Lord's Supper, taking communion and doing those things. So are you genuinely saved? Are you in fellowship with Him? And, and like I mentioned, in our church, I don't make that decision for you, right? That's, that's, that's open communion or close communion. I don't know if you're saved or baptized. Now, you could have a testimony, and you could tell me that you're saved, and you could tell me that you've been baptized, and, and by partaking in the Lord's Supper, you're essentially telling me that you're in fellowship with the Lord and you're walking with Him, but I don't know that. Only, only, uh, the only person that I know about is me. I know I'm saved. I know I'm baptized, and to the best, of my ability, uh, the, the best of my ability, I'm walking with the Lord the way that I should be, but I'm the only one that I know that about for sure. I don't know that about you, so I leave that decision to you. And that's why it's, it's called open communion or close communion. After all, the Bible says, let a man examine himself. Right? It doesn't say let the pastor examine the people. It says let a man examine himself. You have to determine whether you're in, in uh, fellowship with the Lord. But if you're either unsaved or knowingly disobeying God in some area that you, you, know, that, that you should be doing or, or something that you're doing that you should not be doing, then you ought to keep your hands to yourself when the plate goes by. Close communion is those who are members of another Baptist church in good standing, uh, taking, taking part in the Lord's Supper in a church that's not their own, right? So I'd say that, say like, uh, let's say Sarah's parents come. They, they live in Indiana, right? They're members of a different church, but they come on a night when we're doing communion. Um, close communion is the idea that, hey, you're in fellowship with the Lord. You're a member of another Baptist church. You'll, you can partake in the Lord's Supper along with that. And that's why I say, you know, uh, uh, I think often we identify as close communion. You come in, and I don't know who you are, uh, you're, but you say, hey, I, I'm saved, I'm baptized, I'm, I'm a member of a church, I'm in fellowship with the Lord. Hey, great, come on and be a part of it. But really, it's not close communion, it's open communion, right? I mean, I, I, it's, it's not open in the way of I'm just saying, hey, everybody that, that's here, take this. I'm, you know, making sure that you understand the, the parameters and making sure that you understand the prerequisites for all of these things. But essentially, I'm opening it up for you to say, nah, I probably shouldn't. I don't know if I'm saved or I've never been baptized or, you know what, I got a lot of things in my life that I need to get straight before I do this. So um, the, the other option then is closed communion. And I, and I don't think somebody who, who believes in closed communion 
is violating the scripture. Two different times in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uses the term, when ye come together. Um, that's, that's very obviously meaning that when they assemble, when they meet with their church, and that speaks of a local assembly. So people who believe in closed communion say that since Paul is teaching a local church how to observe the Lord's Supper, that would exclude any and uh, you know anybody from outside this church. So if you're not a member of this church, you cannot take part in communion. That's what closed communion is. We don't follow that, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that somebody who does that is wrong either. That's where the autonomy, that's, that's what we talked about, about the autonomy of a local church. That's the A that we've already discussed, right? You can do it how you want to in your church. That's, that's the beauty of being an independent Baptist. But um, it's also illustrated in Acts chapter, Exodus chapter 12, the first Passover, Verse 43 of Exodus 12 said, And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. So no stranger, nobody that was not part of the Israelites was allowed to take part in the Passover. All of them had to be part of the family of families of Israel. So that's another, that's another argument that people who are in favor of closed communion use. Uh, to say that nobody outside of their church can, can take part in it. But again, we are close communion at, at the very least, maybe even open communion, because I, I don't know your heart. I don't know if you're saved. I don't know if you're baptized unless I baptized you. Uh, I don't know if you're in, in, in fellowship with the Lord. I don't know what you're doing in your private life. I don't know what you have going on every single day. I'm not with you everywhere you are. So I, I don't know the answer to that question. Only you do. But we're commanded not to take the Lord's Supper unworthily, so you better not do it, is what it comes down to. Now, let me give you some final thoughts here, and we'll be done. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, just, just by way of kind of concluding some of these things, there, there are those who teach that the, the juice and the bread actually become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. And I know that's a long word, but transubstantiation is... When you take the, when you drink the juice, it actually becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. When you eat the bread, it actually becomes the body of Jesus Christ. That's, of course, completely false. It has no merit biblically whatsoever. Jesus is not crucified again every single time we take part in communion. The Lord's Supper is, is purely something we do in a memorial way. And the bread and the, and the juice are only memorial elements. But these two elements are symbolic of his body and his blood. So we find that the unleavened bread symbolizes the purity of Christ. He was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that. For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now that's, that, that is uh, something that, is, that we can't comprehend, right? How can you live in this world and be without sin completely? Well, that's what made Jesus Christ the only candidate that could possibly die on the cross to pay for our sins. He was the only person that was sinless. We've all sinned, which is why nobody else has the right to take away sins or to say that they're taking away sins. You know, you, you go to some priest and start confessing your sins, and he says your sins are forgiven. He's a fraud. He doesn't have the right to say that. He's a sinner too. Who is he to take your sins away? Only Jesus Christ can do that. But then the juice, which is from crushed grapes, symbolizes the blood that Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross as well. And, and, and again, just uh, as we close, there's, there's, no, there's no frequency in the observance of uh, Scripture. 
how often we're supposed to take the Lord's Supper. It just says, you know, uh, that we're supposed to carefully observe it and do this as, as oft as you do it. He's not saying do it often. He's just saying as often as you do do it, make sure you're following these parameters. And for us, we do it four times, five times a year, um, just because I don't want it to be something that gets to be old hat. Well, oh, we're just, okay, we've got to do communion. All right, we've got that out of the way. Now let's get on with the service, right? It's, it's yes, we're supposed to remember, but, but if you do something so much, you're not, you're not using it as what it's designed to do. You're not using it to remember what he's doing anymore. You're just doing it to get it out of the way. And I know there's, there's some churches, mostly not Baptist churches, that, that do this. Mostly there are other denominations, but they have a communion table in the back. And you walk in, you take the, the, you, you take the bread and the drink, and you, you do it on your way in, and then you go sit down and you start the service. Uh, I mean, I can't, I can't fault somebody for doing that because they have the, the right to do it as often as they want to, but I'm saying that we do it fairly infrequently because I want it to be something very, very special every time that we do it. So... People say, you know, why does it really matter uh, how and when or if I got baptized or if we do or don't celebrate the Lord's Supper? It's just this minor ceremonial observance. What's the big deal about being baptized and then taking part in the Lord's Supper? Well, obviously, all Scripture is important. And the day you and I minimize obeying scriptural commands is the day that our Christianity begins to fall apart. Uh, The Bible very clearly emphasizes baptism after salvation. Over 80 times the Bible mentions being baptized after you're saved. And we're very clearly commanded to observe the Lord's Supper as well. So if you've never been scripturally baptized, get baptized by immersion. Or if you refuse to take communion because you're not right with God or for any other reason, then get things right with God. Partake when we do it next Sunday night. It's important to do it. And, and what a great plan. I say this every time we do it. God says, you better do it. But then he says, you better not do it unworthily. So you better, I mean, it's, it's almost like a, a forced, hard restart, right? Do it, you better do it, but you better be right when you do it. So we, that, that forces us to get right to, and to make sure that we're clean before God. You, you'll live a stunted Christianity for the rest of your life if you refuse to do the very first thing that God commanded us to do, and that's to be baptized after we're saved. And I don't think that's something that, that any of us wants to be a part of. I don't want to live a stunted Christian life because I refuse to be baptized or because I refuse to be right with God in order to partake in communion. So I want to make sure that I'm doing the things that I, ha- that I should be doing in order to be in fellowship with the Lord. That's why it's so important that we partake in those two ordinances, right? Baptism is only done once. After you're saved, the Lord's Supper is done as often as you do it in remembrance of Him. So very, very important. And those are Baptist distinctives. Now, not, not the only ones. We're not the only ones that do baptism in the Lord's Supper, but we're the only ones that do baptism in the Lord's Supper along with all the other things that, we're, that we've talked about and are going to talk about. So they're very distinctively Baptist. And of course, then even the word baptize means to immerse. Baptizo is the word we see in the Bible, and it means to immerse. So to say I got baptized by being sprinkled is, is basically like saying I got immersed by being sprinkled. It, it, just, it just doesn't make sense unless you do it uh, by immersion. So that is something that is, that is um, not uniquely Baptist, but it's something that we as Baptists do. So um, let's, let's review as we close here. So uh, everybody together, what is the B of the distinctives? Biblical authority, A. Autonomy, P. Priesthood of the believer. And tonight, two ordinances. Very good. Let's pray. 
Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you for an opportunity we have to be here. I pray for those that were not able to be here tonight for whatever reason. God, I know some people are still going through uh, sickness and it's still kind of going around. So I pray that you help them to be able to get well and be back here soon. Um, and of course, I pray that you'd help us to understand what we believe, why we believe those things. And uh, I pray that you'd help us, to, as, as the Bible says, to be able to rightly divide the word of truth and that you'd help us to, uh, to study it, to, to memorize it, to, uh, to understand it, and to live it. And I pray that you'd help us as we do that. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Dismissed.